We jump again this morning back into Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Matthew chapter 5, 8. And we're taking these Beatitudes one by one, uh, just doing a little deciphering here and looking for uh, the Spirit of God to once again impress these truths on our heart. These are deep, deep truths, and they're so simple in their text, so simple. And yet we take them and we begin looking at the words and we begin looking at its application in our life. And as we said up front when we began this study, we soon realize that this is a magnanimous expectation in the lives of believers. And rightly so, because once again, none of these things that we look at can be accomplished in our life in and of ourselves. We've discovered that so far with each and every beatitude that we've looked at. And it puts us in a position, really, of introspection each time we go through this. Because this morning we have to ask the question, we'll be confronted once again with the Word of God, the very words of Christ here where He tells us that it is the pure in heart who are the blessed. We'll look at that more specifically as we go. And then once again, He gives us this promise. He says, but they, or for they, shall see God. And if we started at the end and worked our way back, and we just wanted to look at what does it mean to see God? Hey, nobody can see God and live, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Even the great Moses couldn't see God. He could only see the backside of God, the backside of His glory, and live. But here we have a promise that we'll get to see Him. What does that mean? What does it mean in this life? What does it mean in the life to come? And it's there for us to ponder. It's there for us to contemplate. It's there for us to take that moment and and get quiet once again in our spirit. With all that's coming in upon us in our life, whatever that means, Wherever you are right now, how has it affected you? How is it affecting your state before God? Do you remain pure in heart as a believer? Are you indeed pure in heart? How do you see yourself in that context? What does it mean? Well, as our way is, we always take the words at least initially and and look at them. And... uh, even for the novice person who reads and studies through their Bible, they understand that this word heart represents the inner person. It represents the inner person. It is the control center of the mind, if you will. It has everything to do with our will. It also encompasses the emotions. Now, emotions can be true, And they can be misleading, right? When we find ourselves in situations where we act and respond merely because of emotion, we usually find ourselves in trouble. Or we find ourselves at least experiencing a lot of grief in our life that for the most part never really comes about, right? You know what I'm talking about? You do all this shadow boxing in your mind, 
She said that about me. Well, maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. That's just what somebody told you. And then your mind begins to run. What does that mean? What does that mean for the future? How will I talk to this person the next time I see him? How will that infect this project we're working on? And really, you don't even know if it's true or not. You don't know it. And we do this, I call it shadow boxing. What if? Okay. It's an emotional response. And it gives us an opportunity to look at the other end of that equation and say, well, maybe I should just take this and look at it from God's perspective. If there is something going on, if something has happened, if something has been said or any of those scenarios. Hey, is God really in charge of my life? Does he really prepare my way? Is there something that I've done? Am I suffering because of some sinful thought or action? And once you rule that out of the way then just take what God brings your way because He assures you that He is in charge of it. He's in charge of it. Take the emotion out of it. Now, we're emotional beings. I like the good kind of emotion. There's an emotion that I hope to experience this morning. I'm looking forward to it. There's a number of them, but I'm going to tell you about one in particular because it's been a couple of weeks since I've laid my eyes on my little granddaughter and grandson. And when I walk down that hall and they come out of that room and she says, Pops, and takes off running to me, that's a good kind of emotion. That's a genuine emotion. We love our grandkids. We love our kids. I was challenged this week in the workplace about at least I had the ability for a moment to demonstrate the wrong kind of emotion. But thank God I was reminded that God, just as I said, God is in charge. You're there for a purpose. And everything, everything that comes into our life is for a purpose. What does this have to do with being pure in heart? It has to do with the way that we decipher things in our life. The way that we analyze what's going on. That's important because if you sit here this morning and you take a long, long look at your heart and you say, no, am I in this group? Am I literally pure in heart? We're going to understand what that means positionally. We're going to understand what that means as we move through this life and make choices and truly live for our Lord and Savior. We'll understand what that means. Cardia, the heart, but not just the heart, a Pure heart, katharos, is the word. And it means to make pure by cleansing from dirt. It's the assumption that something is dirty, that something needs to be cleaned. It's not just an addition to something that's already acceptable, something that's already good. That's not what it means. It's an assumption of dirt and filth or some kind of contamination. To be pure from that. And we rest this morning, and we'll say it several times, I trust, before our two hours are up, that it's Christ and Christ alone who makes this possible. We can't, we can't do it. So I've asked you this morning to begin, you know, looking, listening, having an open heart to do this examination. And I'm reminded once again of that verse from 1 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 4. I won't go and read it. If you want to turn there, go there. But you're familiar with Paul's being accused. And he says, look, I've examined, let me paraphrase, I've examined my heart. And as far as I know, he says, there's nothing in my heart. But I love what he says after that. He says, 
but I am not by this acquitted. In other words, if I sit here and listen to my own heart, my own mind, at my very best, at my very best, there's still a taint, right? There's still an area. Even at our best, we know there's still the flesh. We rest in our justification. We rest in what God Almighty has done and is, in, and is doing in our life. But when we come to this introspection, this self-evaluation, we must stay close to the Word of God. We must be honest with ourselves because there's always that opportunity that we could get a little left of center, a little right of center because of the flesh. So even with that, we're encouraged. And Paul himself would encourage us when he says to examine yourself, this is what he's talking about. We can do that, but even that with only God's help. I came across six different types of purity, since we're looking at purity right now, from God's Word. You might consider first what's been determined as primal purity. Primal purity. Well, that's purity that exists only with God. It's been there from the beginning. It is definitely the essence of God, part of God, part of his essence. He doesn't exist apart from that. He always has been, always will be, but it's always there with him. Absolute, perfect, uncontaminated, 100% purity, primal purity. And then secondly, you could consider created purity which existed in God's creation before the fall. There was a purity there. There was a, there was a cleanness, right? We understand that from the Word. A perfection. And that, of course, was all changed by the introduction of sin. Thirdly, you would consider positional purity. So we're getting closer and closer to the things of the heart, are we not? Positional purity. It exists in us the moment, the very moment that we come to Christ for salvation. The very moment that the aspects of faith and repentance toward God as a result of our awareness of sin, our own personal need for a Savior, and then equally as important, that there's only one way, only one thing that's ever been done, ever been provided, and that is the all-sufficient sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for our sin. We embrace that. We experience positional purity. It exists the moment we trust Christ as Savior. That is His doing. We might refer to that as the justification, right? And then fourthly, there's an actual purity. Oh, really? We're getting close. Maybe I am pure, you might be saying. Actual purity. It exists in the new heart. The new heart. The Bible has a lot to say about a new heart. We'll look at some of those scriptures in a moment. But it exists there, however. And here it is again. It's not because of anything that you've done. What's the key word? How did it get there? How does it get within us? What's the word? Anybody know it? It's imputed. Imputation. It's put in there. It's an attribute of someone else given to us. It's placed 
within us. So we don't so far, we don't have anything to to jump up and, and down about regarding our own <laughs> efforts, do we? No. Yeah. In terms of imputation, it's more positional and the actual be actual actual purity would be impartation. Impartation. It would be with the actual. As as being imparted to us. Right. Right? From Christ. So you still got it's still getting You can't get away with anything. Thank you, brother. So you've got actual purity. And then fifthly, a practical purity. Okay, now we're getting close. You mean I can actually live this out? I can show evidences, if you will, regularly? Yes, you can. It's all about the results of a changed life, but it's always hinged upon. It's always directly attributed to the work of Christ in our heart, the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Word in our heart. We cannot depart from that. And we don't depart from that. But under practical purity, consider this. It exists in believers as we yield to God. It demands our participation. This is the way it works. Now, if that participation has to be coerced, there's an issue, right? Because what are we talking about? We've already said nobody can receive this in and of themselves. It's something that's imputed because of faith or imputed, imparted uh, because of faith and repentance. So if there's no desire for this, ding, 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 ding. However it works with you, a little light should go off, a little bell should flash, because we're talking about the Savior of our soul. We're talking about the one who has sealed us for all time and eternity. And yet there's something that's keeping us from warming up to Him on any issue, whatever it is. There's something that's keeping us from laying ourselves prostrate before Him and saying, show me your way, not my emotions, not what somebody else is saying. Show me your way. What does the Word of God say about this matter, this situation? It may be something just within you that nobody knows about that the Word and the Holy Spirit have put their finger upon. That's a great thing. That's evidence of change affecting in a person. And if you run from that, if you run from that, you don't want to be there. You don't want to deal with that. I just submit to you this morning that that is the greater issue. There is a battle being fought, a spiritual battle. So, uh, also, it relates to our progressive sanctification, right? Maybe that helps us understand it a little better, this issue of practical purity. We know that it's something that's continuing. We know that it's something that's ongoing, but thank God it's a reality. It represents things that can be accomplished in our life from a spiritual expect- expectation. The change is taking place. It's taking place. And it's often difficult because there is a battle. It requires our supreme effort. We are challenged in the Word of God to stay, as Peter says, to stay sober-minded about these things. We're challenged in the Word of God to stay away from the things of the world, to reject the things of the world and the way that we think, the way that we're motivated, the things that we allow in our life. 
And if we're not careful, we begin to depend upon worldly things for satisfaction, for completion, for contentment, for acceptance, for love, for all of those things. We need to think practically. And the Bible gives us many, many admonitions. Walk in the Spirit, it says, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Really? Whoa. I want to walk in this Spirit. How do I do that? Fill yourself with the Word of God. Discipline yourself to bring yourself before Him and to pray. Surround yourself with people who are on the same pathway, the same journey that you are. And you'll see growth. You'll see protection in all of that. Make no provision, Paul says in Romans 13, 14. A very practical thing. Don't do it, he says. Make no occasion, one Translation says, make no provision for the flesh. That that assumes that we have in Christ, through the Spirit, through the knowledge of the Word, the ability to look ahead and see danger. And then make a choice not to go there. Not to say that. Not to be a part of that. Not to allow that to get its tentacles around my life. Do you see it that way? Now, in case you're wondering, this isn't teaching, this is preaching, okay? Sorry. (laughs) All right. Listen, we got to get this straight. We got to stay on top of this. We really do. This is the essence of our strength as individuals. This is the essence of our strength as a fellowship, as a church. We're all responsible for bringing ourselves. It says this, this involves our participation. And it should be our joyful participation. Don't allow the things, listen, not even the things of the church to take you away from Christ. Have we not just heard about that? Have we not just looked at the church that lost its first love, that was doing all kinds of things, that protected the Word of God, that had a reputation of being staunch on doctrine, and yet its relationship with Christ was waning? It has to do with our very motivations. Our very motivations. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There's nothing in that that says we are responsible for that. It says that as we yield and as we submit, God is faithful to make these things a reality in our life. That's what he's talking about. And we're thankful for that. I said there were six. I've given you five. Number six is a good one because it's ultimate purity. It exists for every glorified believer. It's going to be ours. In the mind of God, it is ours right now. You know, the Bible often speaks in that type of language of something that is so secure, so, as we would say, written in stone, that the Bible speaks of it like it's already present. When actually... It's in the future, or eschatological, as we would say. It's part of that reward, this ultimate purity. Once again, and as we well know, accomplished only by God out of His goodness, out of His grace. We will experience that kind of purity. That's why we can come at a a funeral 
And we can look at the life of a believer. And we can look at the legacy that person has left behind. That legacy of love for Christ, first and foremost. And service to the church. And service to to fellow Christians within the church. Which is the same thing as serving Christ. Is that not what he said? When you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. We look at that and we rejoice. And regardless of how painful the death was, how lingering it was, there's immediate joy because of what God has promised. And we know spiritually it's impacted upon our heart. That is a reality for that individual right there. A wonderful thing. A wonderful thing. This too is part of what God has promised. And we can enjoy a little of that right now as you sit on a rock or sit out in the port swing as the sun's coming up like I was doing this morning and just thinking about, contemplating on what God out of His mercy and grace has provided. The one whom we serve. Well, let's move along. What do the commentators say regarding those who are pure in heart? Because I wasn't born with all this knowledge, okay? I have to dig. And I make no bones about it. I, I happily stand on the shoulders of others because I'm commanded to do that. The things that I've been taught, I'm supposed to teach somebody else. That was a paraphrase. A heart un, of unmixed devotion to God is often what they refer to when they look at this phrase, pure in heart. And they get that from Psalm 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It uses that same terminology as it's translated right there from the Hebrew. And they say, well, that's what it means. It's just this, It means a heart of unmixed devotion. That's what it means. Or to have a desire for God alone, the 25th verse of that same psalm, Psalm 73 where he says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. And that's true, but does it relate specifically to being pure in heart? Also, there's those who hold the view, and they, they would go to James chapter 4, verse 8, and they would talk about the man who's double-minded. And those who are double-minded, according to James, are encouraged to do what? If you know the verse, to purify their hearts. But what, is it, what does it mean? Does it have an Old Testament parallel? And what I've discovered is that really it's, uh, as uh, one commentator says in Psalm 24, you're going to find the closest parallel. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Matthew was sitting around looking through his Old Testament to decide what to write here. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying this is how the Spirit of God moved. There's, uh, there's nothing in the, the Old Testament that was contradicted in the New. They certainly go together. But in Psalm 24, it serves as the likely Old Testament background for this particular beatitude. Who may ascend, in verse 3 and 4, he says, Who may ascend into the hell, uh, hill of the Lord? And who may stand in His holy place. And it answers that question in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And it's the same rendering that you would get from the Septuagint. It's pure heart. And this is the only verse in the Septuagint that describes a person as pure in heart. 
It's the only one I understand. Also, in verse 5, it reads, He shall receive a blessing from the Lord, which, of course, is a parallel to what Matthew's talking about. He mentions the blessing that we just alluded to. Also, in verse 6, he states, This is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, he says, even Jacob, talking about Israel. And we know that those who seek No one is born with the desire to seek God. God puts that in us. Our seeking is a response to what He has done. He may witness to us through creation. He may witness to us through the Word of God. He may witness to us uh, through the person of Christ. But we respond to God. Rest assured, this is important to get because it takes us to once again to that point of depravity. We understand that there's nothing within me that seeks Him. There's no one who seeks after Him, it says. That part of the Bible is true too. And if we do include ourselves in that category, it's because we are responding to one who has first sought us. It just helps us to be, if you will, extra thankful for God's grace. Extra thankful for it. That's the way I see it. So that's what we're looking at this morning. First century Judaism placed a strong emphasis on ritual purity, right? Ritual purity. You needed to wash your hands a lot. Okay? Christ's direction to the religious crowd, His talk to them, and really you can go to what Matthew 23 mostly where he really lays into them. He doesn't deal, well, he deals with this ritual purity, but he debunks it. He talks about internal purity. He talks about leaving some things along, alone and taking up more important things. You'll remember. This purity in heart is a sincere, authentic disposition that moves us to pursue righteousness is a cause and effect in our salvation there is a change that takes place there is an overall that begins of the will which will eventually include the mind and the emotions those emotions can be brought under control can be brought into subjection to christ and when that happens along with so many other things People begin to see a different person. They begin to see a reflection of Jesus Christ. That's a bold statement. I couldn't make that statement if it wasn't validated in Scripture. I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel good about talking about being like Christ. I literally grew up in a church that that was taboo. That would have been considered blasphemy. But we have to have a clear understanding about what Christ has done for us, about what He expects from us. When He says you're salt and you're light, when He says let your light shine, it's because now you have been imparted a pure heart. You now have the potential to do that. And it's not just a potential, a thing to be grasped. It will manifest itself. It's much too powerful to stay contained. Christ used a simple example. He said, you can't, you don't hide it. It can't be hid under a bush. It can't. It just can't. 
It can't. So we're sincere in our pursuit for Him. Purity of heart is not a requirement of salvation, but it is most definitely a result of it. Because it is only, and we'll see again, it is only the pure in heart who will see God. That ought to get our attention right there. Well, no person can achieve purity of heart on his own or her own. We can't do that. Thomas Watson said, mortality can drown a man as fast as vice. I'm sorry, not mortality, morality. (laughs) Throw a T in there. Morality can drown a man as fast as a vice. And he says, a vessel may sink with gold or with dung, either one. It'll take them down. It'll take them down. Wise fellow, don't you think? Genesis 6, 5 says this, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He couldn't produce anything else. Depravity. Or in eight twenty one of Genesis, For the intent of man's heart, he says, is evil from his youth. We're born with it. I've already blamed Adam this morning, right? I have. Isaiah 1, 5 and 6. Where will you be stricken again? He's talking of Israel here and their blasphemies against God. As you continue in your rebellion, the whole head, he says, is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Now, you may be saying, Mike, are you going to go through all the? Are you once again going to tell us how bad we are, right? Like that young girl who came to church one time. and said, ah, They just told me how bad I was while I was there. Well, yeah, that's where you got to go first. We don't regret this as believers because we know we've been pulled out of this. We know we've been saved from this. And this is what motivates us for those who do not know Christ. There's no other hope. This is what you are. But this is what God has done. And when we live like we're pure in the heart, they'll believe what you say because you have credibility. And the Spirit of God can use you. And God will give you the words to speak. He will be in charge of it. You're just the vessel. You're just available. Jeremiah 17, 9 is the verse that we probably would most often think of. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Doesn't he sound like he's exasperated? I've been trying to understand your heart, you people's heart, Israel's heart. I don't get it. That's what he's saying. Who can understand it? How could it be so wicked against all that God has done and provided? How could it be? And once again, it just proclaims that it must, it must have God's intervention. It must be His hand that works. This is what we pray for. Lord, loosen their heart. That person that doesn't know Christ, loosen their heart. Change their heart. Show them their great need. He must do that work. Why? Because there's nobody who seeks Him. No one. Proverbs 29, Who can say I have cleansed my heart? That I am pure from my sin? Psalmist recognizes that. No one can do that. We need help. We need a Savior. We need a mediator. And praise God, we have one. We cannot cleanse our own heart. Only God can do that. 
In Psalm 51.10, you're familiar with the psalm, David's penitent psalm. David cried out, Lord, he's talking to him, create a clean heart for me. He didn't think he could do it. He knew God must do it. Create a clean heart for me. And even for the believer, God must show us. It's like we referred to Paul a while ago. He can't vindicate himself. We must prostrate ourselves before God and say, Lord, shine the light of your truth on the deepest, darkest, the most secret crevices of my life. You must do it. I can't do it, but I'm open to it. And he says for those who come in humility, seeking him, that he will gladly do it. He will do that. Create it. A Hebrew word bara, it refers to a divine creation. It's that ex nihilo. It's out of nothing. It comes out of nothing. It's the work of God. The work of God. And David recognized that and he's simply saying, there's nothing good within me. I tell you what, that's, that's step number one. And if, for change to be affected in the life of any individual, whether it's a person who doesn't know Christ and they're coming to Him for, uh, initially, or it's the believer who's lost their way or who's struggling. I can't do this. I have nothing, as we say, to bring to the table. Matthew's going to talk about that a lot as we, as we go through the book and continue to look at what the Holy Spirit has for us there. He's going to refer to the heart later, even in chapter 5 here in verse 28, as just purely lustful. He sees the heart that way in context, of course, and we'll look at that when we get there. He calls it the source of evil words in verse 12. And he talks in verse 15, verse 8, about how distant it is from God. He just refers to it as just plain wicked in 15, chapter 15. And let me read 19 through 20. He says, for out of the heart, here's the big list, come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, fault witnesses, slanderers. He says, these are the things which defile the man. And then, of course, he was referring or talking to the ritualistic Jews as we've already alluded to because he adds there in verse 20, he says, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. We can't clean ourselves up by just looking at the outside. Plain and simple. And what God's going to do with us will affect the outside, but it'll be the inside working its way out. It won't be that which can also be pretense. Won't be that. It'll be something that's genuine. Genuine. What are some of the practical comments that we would consider in our continual pursuit, if you will, of holiness and having a pure heart before God? Because we talked about that aspect of pursuing it, about being engaged, allowing the work of God to continue to manifest itself in and through us. And they're simple. I think sometimes they're so simple that we walk right over them. We know that. We've heard that before. Well, listen, you're going to hear it again. We're unable. We must understand that we're unable to live a single holy moment without the Lord's guidance and power. We can't do it. 
not one moment. It's not a, it's not a, a weakness in terms of, um, I can't think of the word right now, but uh, doesn't mean you're less of a man or less of a woman. To see yourself as a person who's dominated by this type of weakness, it's not that at all. It's a place we all must go. We must stay in the Word of God, secondly. And thirdly, we must be controlled by walking in the power of the Spirit, whatever that means. That requires us, as I've often said, to examine everything, to filter, to funnel everything in our life through the Word of God. The effective working of the Holy Spirit will take its course if we do that. It must start with your knowledge of the Word of God. The two will never contradict one another. And then, of course, fourthly, and this is where we all fall short. I know I certainly do. Pray. Come apart from the world. Find the time. Get alone with God disengage, if you will, for a while, for a moment, from the demands of the world. And I can assure you, when you return to them of necessity, you'll see things differently. You'll have a greater power. You'll have a rest about you, having been in the presence of God through His Word, through prayer, through the Spirit. This is a discipline. And it's so helpful. I pray in my life, as it continues, that it would become less of a discipline and more of a great joy, more of, a, of an anticipated time that I, I'm, I'm cutting conversations short over here because i got to get to my prayer closet. <laughs> That's where I want to be. It'll change our lives. And the pure in heart, the fact that there are pure in heart is evidence of the new covenant, is it not? How so? Jeremiah 31, 33. The new covenant as you know it. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Who does all of this? Or in Ezekiel 11, 119. Into 120, and I, I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and I will make or will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. There is an effective change. There's a result of the new birth. They will be my people and I shall be their God. And people will know it because they will walk, they will talk differently. Their desires will be different. Their priorities will be different. And they will have a strength about them that comes from God, that makes them effective. They'll have pure joy. Their joy won't be determined by some reckless comment that was made to them during the day, or by befalling some difficulty, won't work that way. He says again in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. 
Pretty much the same thing he said in chapter 11. The new covenant promised forgiveness. Forgiveness from sin, but it also promised an inner transformation. An inner transformation. That's why we can look at a person and make a good determination. You can call it a judgment if you want. A judgment. So that person loves the Lord. Why? Because they made a confession or they can sing really good in church or what? No. Because their continual life shows that they have been changed. Simple as that. And there are thousands and thousands of ways that that change will manifest itself. Thousands and thousands. It goes all the way back to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30. He was talking about circumcision, but he was talking about a circumcision of the heart. A cutting away, if you will. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. What was the purpose of a circumcised heart? What was the purpose of it? He says plainly that you might live for God with all of your heart, with all of your soul. Truly live. And then lastly, and we're right on time, we take a moment to look at this great promise because it says those who are pure in heart will see God. They'll see God. Now once again, and we've gone back and looked at this each time, this word they that Greek word autos, which is an emphatic term, and it means only they. Only these ones, as my young son would say. (laughs) Okay, These are the ones he's talking about right here who will experience this. Only they will see Him. And it's talking about an intimate knowledge, a fellowship with God. It's reserved for the pure. It's God's gracious gift to us. It promises and it looks forward to what God will do when He's encompassed and we see Him encompassed in all His glory, all His majesty. You don't need to look at it figuratively or or bring something mystical into it. It's not that at all. There was an admonition in... in, uh, Hello? (laughs) Wasn't expecting you to talk this way. Okay. You don't want to approach it from a sentimentality standpoint, okay? You don't want to do that. You can't. It's not talking about seeing it in the kindness of others per se. It's not talking about that. It's literally eschatological. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about what's been laid down for us in the future. Not that we can't experience some of it now, because we can. We can peek dimly, as, as Paul says. We can see a little bit. We can see clearly. We can see enough to keep us motivated and to know that it is a real promise that the pure in heart will see Him. What does that mean? It means that we'll be able to come into His presence because of His accomplishment. Because if we can't be in His presence, listen, there's only one other place. Right? There's only one other place. We don't want to be there. We don't want to be there. Old Testament figures 
longed for this great privilege. Moses came close to experiencing it. As I said earlier, when he was placed in the cleft of the rock and he was allowed to behold the, if you will, the after effects of God's radiance. However, even Moses was warned, it says, no one can see my face and live in Exodus 33, 20. And we can go to 1 Timothy 6, 16, where he says God's presence is surrounded and he called it the uh, unapproachable light is the way Paul describes it. Unapproachable light. Light. It refers to a glory that is so great, he says, that the sinners who attempt to look at it are destroyed by it. This is the purity of our great God. And we are going to be allowed to have fellowship with Him. I wanted to say with that, but let me say Him. We're going to have fellowship with Him. Who knows what that's going to be like? I don't know. I can't fathom it. But everything else he's asked me to believe in his word hasn't been debunked yet. I believe that too. And I look forward to that. And our goal should be as believers in the church of Jesus Christ is to take that blessed message to as many people as we can in our families, the people that we work with. Wherever God lands us, we take that message so that his goodness, his purposes can be accomplished we're just the mouthpiece and beyond that we need to live like we're pure in heart we need to latch on to that we don't need to be a contradiction to our message we need to live in a way that causes people (coughs) to turn their eyes toward our great savior paul's desire was this that i may know him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings. Being conformed to His death. Was He not wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Willing to suffer. Wanting to know. Wanting to understand. Wanting to be a partaker. He knew that He was, and He knew what was laid up for Him. David's longing was expressed In Psalm 42, at the very beginning, he says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so I left my bee off. So my soul pants for you, for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? I'm ready to go. When shall I come? It's time. Let's go. Do we live like that? Do we live in anxious expectation for Jesus Christ? Paul says we're to comfort one another with these words. That's what he told the church at Thessalonica. He's coming. And you can comfort one another. You don't have to worry about appearing before Him if you'll yield yourself right now. You won't lose reward, as he says, in another place. We used to simply say, you'll be prayed up. Does that mean anything to anybody? You'll be prayed up. We need to stay prayed up. We do. We need to stay ready to go. Job cried out, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see thee. I get it now. I see it a little differently. God invaded his life and took him to a deeper place, a deeper level of understanding, and ultimately a different level of intimacy with God. And Job, Job had it going on. God was ringing His bell. He was telling Satan, what about this guy? He's the real deal. 
Remember? But there was more to do for the glory of God. The sincere desire of the heart reveals the purity of one's affections. So as we close this morning and we consider what it means to be pure in heart, just ask yourself, what is your heart settled on this morning? What's on your priority list? What do you want? Who are you living for? Who are you living for?